0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Ferrand from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 22nd. Today, the legacy of the Oklahoma City bombing and what a Supreme Court decision means for the NCAA. So, Hannah, I'm curious, what do you remember about the Oklahoma City bombing? Oh, gosh, I was really young. Hannah Alam covers extremism and domestic terrorism for The Post. I was in high
1: school, and uh, it was my senior year, 1995. And I remember, it's actually, the memories are sharper to me now after reporting the story because I've, you know, talk to classmates and everything since I've been here. And what I remember is that we were in high school. It was an ordinary morning. And then around 9 a.m., we heard this thunderous boom. I mean, it was really so loud that we couldn't even conceive that it didn't come from anywhere off campus. Hmm. We were five miles from the Murrow building and it still felt like it came from in our campus. And I remember other kids saying, oh, somebody blew up the chemistry lab. Others have told me, oh, yeah, I thought it was a sonic boom or I thought it was thunder. But then when I looked outside, it was a clear blue day. So we couldn't figure out. We were just like, what what was that weird boom that just shook our school, you know? And Mm -hmm. it wasn't for several minutes until an announcement came over the loudspeaker that there
2: had been a bombing.
1: In Oklahoma City.
2: A massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believe to be a 1,200 pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after nine o'clock this morning. Shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. More than 500 people were already in their offices and at least 50 children were in a daycare center on the second
3: floor.
0: As we have all seen, far-right extremism is on the rise again today. And because of that, Hannah recently went back to Oklahoma City. Because she wanted to see how the city is remembering the act of domestic terrorism that took place there 26 years ago. The bombing was carried out by Timothy McVeigh. He was a Gulf War veteran who had become radicalized with anti-government
2: and white supremacist beliefs. The indictment charges that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, former Army buddies with a grudge against the government, planned the bombing, selected the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City as their target, bought and stole materials for the bomb, and built it.
1: What really seemed to radicalize him were incidents like Ruby Ridge and then Waco, really. The standoff with the Branch Davidians, you know, where...
3: Lots of innocent people died. This morning, investigators began sifting through the embers of the Waco compound, searching for the bodies of more than 80 cult members believed killed in the fire. This afternoon, five of the survivors were arraigned in court on charges stemming from the siege. Investigators hope they'll be able to provide some clues about life and death inside David Koresh's compound.
2: It's my impression that, uh, from what I understand, that it was to the government's advantage that the compound either be demolished or destroyed or burned, uh, because the physical evidence that might have some opportunity of of, uh, disputing uh, their contentions is now destroyed.
1: Who has the ultimate responsibility for the plan that went tragically wrong? President Clinton says he does, and he is offering a strong defense of his decision of Attorney General Janet Reno and the FBI. I mean, lots of Americans who were not extremists were upset about that incident and asked a lot of questions. McVeigh became obsessed with it, though, and, and chose April 19th, the Waco anniversary, to carry out his attack. So on that morning, April 19th, 1995, he drives a truck just laden with thousands of pounds of explosives to
2: downtown Oklahoma City,
1: and at 902... The truck detonates.
2: Authorities now believe the truck that bore the bomb was parked in a space alongside the federal building. A second vehicle may have been nearby to permit the bombers to escape. The FBI said today it was a huge explosion and that the explosive used was most likely a simple combination of fertilizer and fuel oil. And,
1: I, I mean, it permanently altered the skyline of Oklahoma City. It left a huge scar and a hole in downtown Oklahoma City, it not only took out the federal building with the daycare where 168 people died, including 19 kids. Oh my gosh. You know, many of them from the daycare. But also, I think people forget that it was, I mean, it really blew apart downtown. Hundreds of buildings were destroyed or damaged, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. And apart from the 168 people who died, over 600, 700 were injured. Some of them, seriously, and some of them in ways that, you know, they're still disabled today. So it's a long memory here, and it was, it's a, it was a national pain. It was, you know, one of the worst domestic terrorist attacks in, in the country's history.
0: McVeigh was arrested later that day for an unrelated crime, and the next day, police identified him as the bomber. At the time, Merrick Garland was a prosecutor for the Justice Department, and he led their case against McVeigh in 1997.
2: Timothy McVeigh guilty guilty of murder guilty of conspiracy guilty on all 11 federal charges that he faced in the Oklahoma City bombing trial his conviction comes a little more than two years after a massive bomb shattered the Murrah federal building killing 168 people including 19 children
0: McVeigh received the death penalty and was executed by lethal injection in 2001
2: for the survivors of the crime and for the families of the dead the pain goes on. Final punishment of the guilty cannot alone bring peace to the innocent. It cannot recover the loss or balance the scales, and it is not meant to do so. Today, every living person who was hurt by the evil done in Oklahoma City can rest in the knowledge that there has been a reckoning.
0: The fact that the person who was at the center of this bombing was motivated by an anti-government stance, connections to white supremacist groups. I mean, a lot of that sounds very similar to the motivations for people who attacked the Capitol earlier this year for a lot of the right wing extremism that we're starting to see resurge um, in recent months and years. What do you see as this connection between the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 and now? Well, that
1: was that was the question I was going to explore. You know, now we are talking about anti-government extremism again. We're talking about the rise in domestic terrorism. We've got this reinvigorated campaign against domestic terrorism at the federal level. And then apart from that, we've got the national conversation, which is much more divided and partisan. And, you know, if you're on the left, you see the right wing as the threat. If you're on the right, you see, you know, radical leftists as the threat. And in fact, I mean the statistics are pretty clear. I mean the FBI says the most lethal and urgent domestic terror threat is from the far right, specifically white supremacists. So I just thought with all of these, you know, questions swirling and this debate swirling and big plans about domestic terrorism coming up, I just wondered what are the lessons and legacy of Oklahoma City and would I go home to my home state and find a more nuanced discussion of the
0: problem because of this trauma that the state has gone through. So when you went back to Oklahoma City, like, what were the ways in which they were kind of having these conversations about right-wing extremism now and also about the bombing?
1: Well, like anywhere else, a lot of these discussions are playing out on social media, on Facebook groups, at community meetings, all the places where usual kind of culture war stuff gets hashed out. But this is not just any culture wars issue. This is the Oklahoma City bombing. And, you know, there are still bumper stickers about never forgetting. And there's this, you know, the idea of Oklahoma strong and the Oklahoma standard and all of these slogans about support and solidarity that came from the bombing era. But the way it's discussed now is very much, at least in public, a very, very partisan discussion.
0: The Oklahoma City bombing came back into the news earlier this year when Merrick Garland was named as U.S. Attorney General. He spoke at an event on the 26th anniversary of the bombing in April.
2: 26 years ago, I was sitting in my office in the United States Department of Justice in Washington when an urgent report came through from the United States Attorney's Office in Oklahoma City. It was soon followed by a second urgent report And then a third, there had been an explosion at the Murrah Building.
1: It's a tradition at these anniversaries that you don't mention McVeigh's name. It's supposed Mm. to be all about the families, all about the survivors, all about the overcoming of this terrible incident, not the perpetrator. But Merrick Garland's speech, he mentions McVeigh. And he mentions domestic violent extremism and he names the name and he names
2: the problem. Although many years have passed, the terror perpetrated by people like Timothy McVeigh is still with us. Just last month, the FBI warned of the ongoing and heightened threat posed by domestic violent extremists. Those of us who were in Oklahoma in April 1995... Do not need any warning. The hatred expressed by domestic violent extremists is the opposite of the Oklahoma standard.
1: And while that was a shock for a lot of the survivors and and observers, I think a lot of people felt it was an overdue and and, um, necessary conversation to have. And what was the reaction to that? Carrie Watkins, the memorial director, told me that some families were kind of like, what? McVeigh, you know, they said his name, he said his name. But she and many others, civic leaders, activists, others say, we have to name this problem. We have to connect the dots. They've added exhibits at the memorial and museum showing, you know, the links to today's domestic extremism. You know, you can go in there and you can see the t-shirt McVeigh was wearing, which had all these sort of patriot movement slogans on it that I still see at right-wing rallies today that I saw at the Capitol on January 6th, that I saw at lockdown protests all summer. So the museum and others are really trying to
0: make an effort to connect those dots. And do you get the sense that other officials are kind of taking up that same approach that Mayor Garland has taken and drawing this direct connection between the Oklahoma City bombing and right-wing extremism now? Well, it
1: depends on who you ask here. This is ruby red Oklahoma I mean, Democrats really are almost powerless here. It's, it's Republican-dominated. So this is really kind of an internal struggle among Republicans now because there are certainly more moderate Republican leaders here like Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt, who's quite specific and names the problem, says we need to be talking about extremism more in Oklahoma. We know exactly where it leads. It's a very simple
3: statement and a very simple lesson. It's, it's look at that scar in downtown Oklahoma City and 168 lives we lost and recognize that that's where this all leads if you pursue this path of extremism. And I hope that our residents have long since learned that lesson and I hope that Americans everywhere can continue to look at Oklahoma City as a reminder. I mean, it, it was 25 years ago and it can seem uh, somewhat distant, but uh, it is certainly potential precursor to the types of rhetoric and behavior that we're seeing now. So let's not go down that path again.
1: To juxtapose that with, you know, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, who's a a Trump-backed Republican, he gets up, he never names domestic violent extremism. He talks about the forces of hate and violence generally, but he doesn't name it. And then he says something about forces seeking to cancel us.
3: Never in our lifetime has it been easier for us to be divided. There are groups that refuse to listen to another point of view. They try to cancel anyone who sees the world differently.
1: And the message was unmistakable. He did not name domestic violent extremism, which we know to be a far-right phenomenon in this case. Instead, he, he was trying to basically take a jab at the left.
3: We need to remember it's okay to disagree on the details and still be friends.
1: There's a lot of other Republicans who are in power. I talked to five, six of them, uh, very senior Republicans here, who who did the what about, you know, sort of turn of conversation. When I would ask them about it, they'd say, yes, yes, it's terrible what happened. We don't like to see those violences. shame, you know, we see those with the left and the civil rights protests and we see, you know, they immediately pivot." to anything but acknowledging the kind of ideology that was behind it.
0: So for survivors of the bombing, do they have a concern that there is a missed opportunity here in terms of using their experience as a cautionary tale for the kinds of violence that we're seeing now and could see more of in the near future?
1: Some do, some don't. And it is, again, politically fraught. I mean, most Oklahomans are conservative Republicans. That's how they vote. And so I think for some of the families, what I'm hearing is this, they're torn, you know, their sort of party and ideology and sensibilities are out of step with what they experienced firsthand and the devastation. And when you look at someone like Fran Ferrari. I was 40 at the time. And I thought I was doing fine for any
4: 40-year-old woman. I was, you know, the the weekend before, I was at the barn. I remember I could unload bales of hay, 50-pound
1: feed sacks, dog food bags. She had an active, full life. And in an instant, in an instant, McVeigh... Took that from her.
4: And one of the things I realized a number of years ago was that I think my experiences being hurt in the bombing it took away what I considered what was going to be my process in aging. Because at forty, that is kind of that you get a bit reflective. And I feel like the if, if something's terrible to say, Timothy McVeigh and his buddies took away my aging process.
1: And. Every April, she remembers what it felt like to have that taken from her in an instant, to have that her life changed like that. And she said that the memories usually start on April 1st and she kind of plays out April all the way until April 19th. But this year, she happened to be watching the news and she was watching the January 6th attack on the Capitol and she heard glass shatter and that instantly Took her back to her office, to the rubble, to that feeling yeah, of being it's trapped.
4: Very basic level. My body still remembers. My head still remembers. Even though I know, you know, like watching on for on, June, on January sixth. Even though watching and very, I mean, it's amazing how in a snap you can just go back to that 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 uh, talking about primal, that basic memory and that being scared. That's yeah that
1: that I don't know
4: why like no I I guess that is why that one bothered me. Yeah. The glass breaking.
1: Yeah. She says I wouldn't wish anyone to go through what I went through. So you know it she says it's not it's not wise to play down the seriousness of the ideologies that influence this. It's not wise to look the other way as groups today radicalize under those same ideologies. And um, so she just said she's moved away from the Republican Party because of the extremism, now identifies as an independent, and has changed in a lot of ways and really wants to see the state leaders taking this issue seriously and putting aside the partisan part of it and just saying, this is an attack that changed my life, changed the state, that changed the country in many ways. And yet here we are staying quiet as these forces gather again. That makes her very nervous and, and fearful. So that it is, it's still very fraught. And, and I don't think anyone wants to shy away from the conversation And the, among the survivors and family members I spoke with. But I think they want to have it in a way that's a conversation starter and not a conversation stopper. And so if you hear, if you start with far right, far right, far right, I think a lot of people are going to tune out. And that, that was the, the feeling. How do you effectively deliver the lessons and the legacy of this bombing in a place like Oklahoma?
0: Anna Alam covers extremism and domestic terrorism for The Post. Renny Svernovsky produced this story. And now, one more thing about the NCAA from post-sports columnist Jerry Brewer.
3: On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled in a 9-0 decision that NCAA athletes can be allowed for education-related purposes to have extra perks. That schools can offer them things such as computers, internships, postgraduate opportunities, uh, all things short of actual cash for non-education purposes. Previously, that did not fall under the NCAA's very robust and rigid set of rules.
0: In 2019, the NCAA reported $1.1 billion in revenue, but they provide little or no compensation to their student athletes.
3: Not a lot is going to change. After this ruling, it does not allow players to get paid. It's not like all of a sudden the star quarterback is going to be able to put $200,000 in his pocket. I mean, we're, we're talking about maybe an internship that might pay $5,000 accessible to him. $2,500 souped-up laptop is something that colleges could provide. But what's interesting is, When you look at the Supreme Court ruling, you're starting to wonder if they're sending a signal that they're willing to have a bigger conversation if it comes before them about the entire college sports model.
0: Most of the revenue from the NCAA goes toward funding pretty much everything except the players themselves.
3: The average big time college football coach is going to make $4 million plus. You've got athletic directors who are millionaires, conference commissioners who are millionaires, how you square that with unpaid labor. Now the NCAA, all of college athletics would tell you their business model is predicated on the fact that people see them as an amateur sport, that they are not a professional sport. And if they became a professional sport, they would be seen as something less than. So the consumer would not appreciate that and would back away from that. When you really break it down and you look at college football, college basketball, you're talking about predominantly black athletes, many of whom came from nothing. And you're essentially telling them you wouldn't know how to handle yourself and you would kind of ruin our product if we didn't have these rules in place governing the way that you handle things, when you look at all this money that people are making on the backs of what people would consider unpaid labor.
0: In a concurring opinion, Justice Kavanaugh wrote that, quote, the NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. And he essentially invited more legal challenges to the NCAA.
3: This isn't the last that we'll hear of it. And they are sending a signal that if others want to bring this to the Supreme Court, it's going to be very hard for the NCAA to win. For the NCAA, this is a final warning that the Supreme Court is giving them. The way that you have done things, especially over the last 20 years, as the money has has exploded, uh, you are not on good legal grounds doing it the way that you've been doing it. And so the message is real clear. Change or be changed. You do not want to be changed.
0: Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. So we have some very exciting news to share. Today, our team won a Peabody Award for our story, The Life of George Floyd. We are so thrilled and honored and grateful and humbled. And we wanted to share the news with the listeners who've told us how much this story has meant to them. If you want to see our acceptance speech filmed in my closet and introduced by Trevor Noah, you can find a link to that in today's show notes and at postreports.com. That is also where you can find a link to subscribe to The Washington Post, because that is the best way to support the journalism and the newsroom that made this story possible. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.